people have different perspectives, different experiences, different personalities. And when we embrace that and appreciate what each person brings to the table, then we can create a powerful culture of innovation. Welcome to the Innovation and Compliance Podcast, part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Join us every week as we talk with industry innovators who are making compliance to help business run more efficiently and at the end of the day, more profitably. Here's your host, Tom Fox. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Welcome back for another episode. And you're in for a treat today because as listeners to this podcast know, the name of this podcast is Innovation and Compliance. And today we're going to talk about innovation. And we're going to talk about innovation with an innovation expert. And let's see where this puppy goes. So, Stephen, first of all, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, welcome. And thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Tom, I'm thrilled to be here. Looking forward to wherever we go with this. So our guest today is Stephen Shapiro, and Stephen has been in the field of innovation, I think, about as long as he's been in his professional life. So Stephen, could you tell us a little bit about your professional background and what led you to what I'm going to call the field of innovation? Sure. So I started my career with Accenture, and back in the early 90s, process optimization, it was called business process reengineering, was a pretty popular thing back then. And I was one of the leaders of this practice. And what I realized was people were losing jobs as we optimized processes and optimized businesses, people were downsized. And I woke up one day and just realized this is just not the legacy I want to have for my life. So I took some time off and 25 years ago, launched a 20,000 person innovation practice at Accenture. And the focus instead of was, instead of optimization was value creation and growth. And it was just a, a great thing to be able to be involved with that. And then I left Accenture back in 2001. And for the past 20 plus years, I've been doing my own thing, all focused on innovation. We met in May at the PodFest Global Conference. And I had the chance to visit with you a little bit then. And we've had some more conversations. And I have to say, you are incredibly passionate about innovation. What drives that passion in you? Well, given that you look right now, the economic situation that we have. And the, the natural reaction is we're going to downsize, we're going to get rid of people. And I actually saw the negative impact of just one person losing a job. And when I started to think about tens of thousands of people losing jobs, it shook me to my core. And so the reason why I'm so passionate about innovation is to me, it is the key for economic growth, for companies, for individuals, and for society. And so for me, if all we do is focus on, to use an expression that I heard Jack Welsh once use, is that if we spend all of our time squeezing lemons, we're never going to grow. It's time to start growing lemons. And that's what I like to do is help companies grow lemons. The other thing in doing a little bit of research on you and your writings is you have really articulated a process around innovation. So I wanted to maybe go into that a little bit. You've got one process that's called fast innovation. Could you describe what that process is? Sure. So I am an engineer by background. So I love, I love processes. To me, you want them to be repeatable and predictable. And so FAST is actually an acronym that stands for Focus, Ask, Shift, Test. And focus basically means, let's just step back for just a second. When most people think about innovation, they think about ideas and suggestions and opinions and hackathons and quantity, quantity, quantity. The reality is because we have limited resources in an organization, we need to focus our energies. And that's what that F is, is to figure out where do we focus our energies? How do we innovate where we differentiate? How do we identify what's most important? So that's the focus part of the fast innovation model. Then it's ask, shift, test. Once we know where to focus, let's ask better questions that help us deliver better solutions 
And then ultimately we have to test those solutions in order to bring them to market. So that's what FAST is all around. When I first came across the FAST innovation and the process, I have to say every compliance professional and every chief compliance officer needs to learn this approach because that's exactly what we say you have to do in a compliance innovation process, whether it be a simply an upgrade of something as basic as a code of conduct or truly new innovation, is the process you have created transferable along corporate disciplines or different types of innovation projects? The whole point of having a process is to have something which can be shared, trained, and it really gives you some level of confidence and repeatability. I mean, unfortunately, most people are using very, very scattershot type of approach. It's like, again, it's about quantity, but if you have the right process, the reason why we have processes is repeatability and efficiency. So a good process should help you do something important more efficiently and be able to scale that throughout the organization. Many of the listeners to this podcast are compliance officers. They may be in anti-corruption compliance, anti-money laundering compliance, trade or export control compliance, or other types of compliance. And one of the things that the regulators have talked to us about over the past several years is culture. And you talk about a culture of innovation. So I wondered if you could start with explaining how you could help develop a culture of innovation and, frankly, how you created a 20,000-person culture of innovation in Accenture. So I think culture is important because that becomes sort of the norms, the beliefs, the behaviors that people take on. So when I look at innovation, to me, most companies go through three different levels, three different steps. The first one is innovation as an event. And that's where most companies were. It's about brainstorming. It's about suggestion boxes. It is about that generating as much as we possibly can, but that's not efficient and it's not sustainable. So the second level is innovation as a process, which is what we were just talking about. Now, what we want to do, though, is go beyond innovation as a process to innovation as a system, because at some point processes, if they're explicit and they're mandated and they're measured, can actually get in the way. So once you have that culture of innovation, you're able to now allow people to have a little more flexibility as they know the rules. And that's what we did. And it was fascinating. In nine months, we went from zero to 20,000 people in terms of building this culture. We put a number of structures in place to be able to sustain that for many years. And even when I left the company, we were still going strong five years later. What is the role of the executive leadership team or senior management in creating and sustaining a culture of innovation? The leadership's purpose is to, if you're a publicly traded company, it's satisfying shareholder needs and customer needs and employee needs. So when I look at innovation, most people tend to think about it as novelty, but actually the reality is, from my perspective, innovation is about relevance. And the role of any senior leader in an organization has to be about relevance. It has to be about making sure you're offering the right products, the right services, using the right business model to the right people in the right way. And so it is, to me, the mandate of leaders to innovate from that definition and to actually throw out the perspective that it has to be new, different, or novel is about relevance. And if we focus on that, then every leader should see a value of innovation. There's another group in every corporation, public or private, and that's the board of directors. How does a board of directors help this process, keeping in mind their role is oversight, not day-to-day management? Well, I think what happens is a lot of time the board is you know, heavily focused on maybe short-term quarterly earnings or some other type of early wins. And what the board needs to do is basically recognize that if you do that, 
at the expense of the long term, eventually the long term will not show up. And so you need to get that right balance. And the board needs to be able to have a little more flexibility in terms of how they define success. And if success is always defined by the quarterly earnings, then eventually there's going to be a quarter where you're not earning and you're out of business. So to me, that's a really important role to provide that guidance for the need for the future while also embracing the fact that we do have a business to run today. Let me see if I can introduce a couple of concepts from the compliance world. And I think I hear you saying them. One of the key components of every compliance program is a whistleblower reporting system. That's evolved to a speak-up culture or speak-up system all the way to a speak-up culture. But the key is that employees have the trust to raise their hand and speak up, whether it's to report a violation or whether it's to make a new suggestion. And they trust that they won't be punished for that. And they trust that whatever they have to say will be taken seriously and either investigated, looked at, or considered. It seems to me that that is a part of what you're saying. Would that be a fair assessment? That's a totally fair assessment. I think that's a fantastic example. Usually what ends up happening is in most organizations, whether it's compliance or safety or whatever type of protective function an organization has, it tends to be focused on the department. It's like a few select individuals are driving the change for the rest of the organization. Whereas if you build a culture where everyone acts as an owner, where everyone acts in the best interests of the overall organization from a compliance perspective, now you get greater results. I'll just give you a quick example from the world of safety, which I'll put in a similar category. One company originally hired more safety inspectors in order to improve safety didn't work. So what they did was they incentivized employees to identify safety issues and to provide solutions to those safety issues. And within one year, the number of accidents in this highly dangerous industry, the accidents went down by 50% in one year, basically through creating this culture and incentivizing people, every person, not just a department, to get involved. Let me uh, switch to a, a little bit different topic. You have mentioned you're an engineer by professional training. I'm the son of an engineer. Typically, when I heard engineers talk, it was not really interesting. I, that's not fair. It was not very persuasive to me. But you have been actively involved in the National Speakers Association. You've been on the board of directors of the National Speakers Association. You speak nationally and perhaps internationally as well. How does an engineer bring the passion I'm hearing from you to a large keynote speech? Well, I think <laughs> even though I'm an engineer by education, I always wanted to be a TV game show host. So I think that sort of drives me at some level going way, way back. If you remember the gong show with Chuck Barris, Chuck sure. Barris was the guy I wanted to be. I just thought he was this crazy nut and I thought he was so cool. And so for me, it was that great combination, even in, in college. My only A plus, we had A pluses where I went to school. My only A plus was actually public speaking. So I knew there was an aspect of that which became important, but I guess not as much on a personal level, but on a bigger level, what I think is so important is we need to recognize that innovation isn't about the idea. It's not about the solution. It's actually about the value it ultimately creates. And you can't create value if you can't sell your ideas, sell it internally to other people who might be able to fund your solution obviously sell it externally. So I became so passionate about being able to marry the ability to do something efficiently, something that creates a lot of value and being able to sell that in a way that people now get excited about it. You're also a multi-book author. I was wondering if you could tell us uh, about your books and recognizing that all fathers love all their children the same. <laughs> do you have a favorite book? So I have five books that are available 
first one was the one that I wrote while I was actually at Accenture in 2001. And basically the book launch party was my leaving Accenture party. So I love that book, but it's a little old, 20 years old. I wasn't really the best writer at that point. I think it's my second book, which is not even really a hardcore business book and maybe my favorite. It's called Goal-Free Living. It's on how to live a life without goals. And it really started off as an exploration into creativity. And I interviewed 150 creative individuals. And the common thread that all those individuals had was they thought about goals very differently than the, the typical person. So if I were to choose a favorite, it might be that one just because it really talks to me very deeply about our obsession with goals. Just to round them out, I've got Personality Poker, which is a card game. I love that one. Best Practices Are Stupid. And my most recent one is called Invisible Solutions. Well, let me spend a little bit of time on Invisible Solutions. And could you tell us some of the key themes and takeaways from that book and how you're able to incorporate that into your presentations? So coming back to the, the fast innovation model, the first part was focus, but the second step is to ask. And it's about asking better questions. And a lot of times we think that the key to innovation is ideas or even finding solutions. But the problem is if you're solving the wrong problem the wrong way, you'll never get the right answer. And so Invisible Solutions is based on a tool that I developed and its purpose is to help people stop looking for answers and to look for better questions. And through the process of reframing, take what you thought was the original problem and put it through the set of lenses that I've developed to help you rethink, reframe, and relook at the problem from a different angle. You know, I could certainly give you some examples, but that's the general premise of the book is better questions lead to better solutions. There is a lot of commentary, and I've been one of those who have talked about the need in the compliance profession to listen. You are one of two people I have either written about or talked to who say, let's look at it a little bit differently. Let's ask before we listen, and let's frame the question correctly. Why is that framing the question correctly or just iterations of questions and to continue asking those questions so important in the innovative process? As human beings, we are influenced by our past experiences, our past decisions, and our past beliefs. And we think when we're trying to develop something that is innovative, it's highly influenced by the past. But as we know, the future is not going to look like the past. And so what ends up happening is we build up this hidden repository of assumptions, and those assumptions influence and limit our ability to actually see new, different, and better futures. And so the reason why reframing is so important is because quite often the original problem we're solving, the original opportunity that we're focused on is influenced by our assumptions. And unfortunately, if we allow us to solve a problem, if we focus on solving a problem or an opportunity that is past-based, well, we're not going to be serving future needs of future customers. And so it's so important to just step back and say, what do we really need to focus on here? What's really going on so that we can make sure we're moving in the right direction as opposed to moving in the wrong direction quickly? Stephen, you've used uh, customers several times throughout this podcast. For the compliance officer, your customer is your employee, the employees of a corporation. Does this process work if your customers are internal to your organization as opposed to external who might be purchasing something from you? Absolutely. I would say probably 75% of the work I do is with people who have internal customers as well as sometimes external customers. But in most cases, the work that someone does is for someone else inside an organization. And it might seem as though 
you have security in the work that you're doing. But the reality is organizations need to be nimble, they need to be fast, and they need to be able to adapt. And so your internal customers are going to have the same expectations that external customers are going to have. So that is going to trickle down. And I think it's incredibly important. I would also say, though, coming back to something that we talked about just a couple of minutes ago, is that internal customers can also become internal parts of your process. So we talked about compliance. I talked about safety. Instead of viewing them as the customer, what if they're really part of the compliance team? What if they are now actually bought into it in a way where they're executing on everything? And I understand the purpose of compliance is to be able to set sort of the norms, the standards, and, and give people the tools. But when we really have people feel like a sense of ownership, it takes on a completely different perspective in terms of how effective people are in their role. In your, I'm going to call it a white paper entitled, We Created a 20,000-Person Culture of Innovation at Accenture, and you can too. You really spoke to that point by not only developing content, but training masters and then utilizing those masters to help push your message out throughout your organization. Would that be correct? Absolutely. It's building on what we were just talking about is in innovation, a lot of times people imagine a bunch of creative individuals sitting on high mountains wearing long white robes, you know, handing down the gospel for the future. And that is so far away from what innovation needs to be. Innovation has to be for people, by people. The same thing is true with compliance. We need to get everybody involved in understanding. And so, yes, you'll have those people who might have the deepest level of understanding and mastery, but if they do all the work, you don't get the benefit. Scaling being able to take that, create the culture, and have those individuals create ambassadors. And those ambassadors share with a larger organization. You can get it to tens of thousands of people very quickly if you use the right structures, and you can have it sustained, again, by having the right structures. Can you hire for innovation in the hiring process? Can you talk about a culture of innovation if you come on board with our organization to help foster this entire process? Yes. And I will say that we tend to think of innovation as being a trait which we're going to measure in someone. The reality is because innovation is a process, everyone has particular skills as it relates to innovation. They just might be different skills. So that's my personality poker, which is a card game, is designed to help you understand who are the people who are going to be able to be best at identifying which problems to solve. Who are the people who are going to be best at coming up with better breakthrough solutions? Who are going to be the people best at being able to drive and implement solutions? And who are going to be the people best at engaging people? So it's not just one trait that you have on a checklist, but rather it's a series of traits that are going to require multiple people to be able to bring this to fruition. And each step requires a different set of skills and a set of behaviors. And we need to be hiring not to basically have everybody fit the mold. Because I always say, if, if you only hire people who fit the mold, eventually the organization is going to grow mold. We need to hire for divergent thinking. People have different perspectives, different experiences, different personalities. And when we embrace that and appreciate what each person brings to the table, then we can create a powerful culture of innovation. So we're going to link to personality poker. Oh, oh there the we show go. Notes because I have it on my desk. Let me turn to perhaps ask you to put on your Karnak, the Magnificent Hat, and prognosticate a little bit with a couple of different concepts. Perhaps the most prescient line I heard or comment I heard during the heart of the pandemic was along the lines of the following. 
we've moved from disaster recovery to business resiliency to business as usual. Moving forward from the pandemic, we had the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and I think a huge shock to how business is done in a multiple of areas. I say all that as a background to asking you the question, do you see innovation and indeed the evolution of innovation as even more important down the road in 2025 or perhaps even beyond? I think innovation is going to become more important each and every year. The more the world changes, the more we need to change. And so, again, we need to move out of this perspective of innovation is for a few people. It's for everyone. It's about one-time change. No, it's, it has to be ongoing, repeated, and rapid change. And that, to me, is really the key. And so as technology evolves, as society evolves, as behaviors start to shift, we need to shift with them. What made us successful as an organization in the past is going to be irrelevant in the future. And that's why I think what we're doing, especially like right now, the Invisible Solutions book came out at the very start of the pandemic. And my first thought was, what a terrible time to launch a book. Now, actually, in some respects, it was an incredible time because people had more problems and bigger problems and more complex problems. And if they can solve those quickly, then they can get onto the next thing that's maybe even more important. So I do think innovation is incredibly important now and more so in the future. I've interviewed some individuals for this podcast who advocate that talent acquisition and retention will become, if not the most, certainly one of the most important parts of a corporation. And I wanted to wed your thoughts around innovation to that. If you have a culture of innovation, is that going to help drive attracting top-level talent and keeping top-level talent? Putting aside whether or not I believe that is going to be the most important challenge for an organization, I do believe that if you create a culture with strong values that attract people, then you will be in a better position. Let's face it, everybody wants to work for a, a company that's respected. They want to work for an organization that's going to make an impact. And I think impact is really important these days, maybe more than ever. People want to feel like the work that they are doing is not just to get a paycheck but rather is to make a difference. And so if they're going to be doing something that makes a difference, the organization has to be positioned to not only make a difference as an organization, but allow each individual to bring their unique and individual talents to the table. And the thing which I think makes it very difficult for organizations is that their performance review systems, their performance management systems, the way that they incentivize, motivate, promote people, tends to use a very cookie cutter approach, but people don't fit into a box. And so we need to recognize that if we start to focus on incentivizing, motivating, recognizing, and rewarding people the way they want to be rewarded, then you have an organization people are going to want to work for. Stephen, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on yourself innovation, or any of the other topics we've touched on in this podcast, what would be the best way for them to find out more? Probably the best way is just to go to my website, steveshapiro.com. And that article we talked about with the 20,000 person organization Accenture, you'll find that on every page in the website. So if you want to get that article pretty fast to get that. The other thing which I'd have you just look at are two other pages. One is personalitypoker.com if you want to learn more about that. And then invisiblesolutionsbook.com which is all around the reframing. So those are probably the best places to learn about the work that I'm doing right now. We're going to link to all of those in the show notes, and I would encourage everyone to check out Stephen's website because it has some really fabulous resources that you may not think they relate to compliance, but let me tell you, they're dead 
aim at the compliance professional. Stephen, I have two criteria for a successful podcast. Number one, how much did I learn? Number two, how much fun did I have? And you hit 11 on both. So I hope we can continue this conversation. Absolutely. I would love to explore it. And you know, if people come back to you and they say, hey, you know, how does innovation really, you know, let's go a little deeper on this one area of innovation. Would love to explore that with any time, anytime that you want. If you want to stay up to date on the latest innovations in compliance and help your business run more efficiently, subscribe to this podcast and help spread the word by leaving a review.